presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Today, I am with Michael Fields, the executive director at Colorado Rising Action and Advocacy Organization Fighting for Limited Government lowering taxes, fighting government overregulation that stifles freedom, affordable and accessible health care, free enterprise, and strong national security. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me on, Earl. In addition to Mr. Fields, I am joined by Dustin Zavonik, a candidate for Aurora City Council, a small business owner, and more importantly, I might add, the former director of policy and research of the Common Sense Institute. Dustin, it's great to have you back today. It's great to be back. Well, let's start a deep dive here. It's going on in the state, and I think many of us probably don't understand the consequences of it. We want to take that dive I referred to on a major law that is unique to Colorado, why it is relevant today. And nearly three decades after being voted in by Coloradoans in 1992, it's under attack again. That is TABOR, or the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. In recent years, we have seen direct attempts through our state's ballot process to strike Tabor entirely. At best, Tabor is being challenged from multiple angles, and we have two guests joining us to discuss those challenges and why they matter to you. So, Michael and Dustin, let's get started, and I appreciate the candor with which you're going to answer my questions. What is Tabor? You know, why is it relevant today? Michael? So Tabor has two main parts to it. One is that you get to vote on tax increases. So if uh, the government wants to raise your taxes, you get a say in that. The second part is that uh, if revenue exceeds population plus inflation, uh, that you get refunds. And so we've had a debate over both of those parts of Tabor over the years. And and really, Tabor has other things that also uh, are in it. You know, the, the fact that we have a flat tax here in Colorado, uh, it, it prescribes certain ballot language that has to be on there. But the main tenants are voting on tax increases uh, and, the, and refunds if the government gets too much money. Okay. When you say revenue, you're talking about money that we pay into the state. And Tabor allows it to somewhat get tied to population growth and inflation. Is that... A fair statement for the state budget? Yes. Okay. Dustin, uh, you're running for Aurora City Council. Thank you for taking that chance to step out and get involved in public public life like you are. What is the most relevant issue to Tabor at the municipal level? Yeah, you know, I don't think it's any different at the municipal level than it is at the state level in that it's it's a taxpayer protection in the same two ways. One, it allows local voters to vote on tax increases, and two, it provides the, those those same caps on government growth at the municipal level. I do want to note that at the local level, what we've seen, and, and Michael referenced the debate we've had over those two tenants of Tabor over the years, at the local level, we've seen voters vote to increase taxes, and we've seen voters do what's called debrucing or allow the local governments to keep above that level in a much greater way than they have at the state level. And I, I argue that it's because people have more confidence in their local governments than they do in the state or, frankly, the federal government. But those two protections that are in Tabor that apply to the state, I think, are equally important and equally relevant even at the municipal level. Well, how broadly is that exercise? Is that just unique for the very wealthy areas of the state that they, hey, I've got more money I want to spend for emergency services or my county government, or is it broadly uh, exercised from a socioeconomic perspective? Yeah, no, it's broadly exercised. And in fact, 
Um, you can look at some of the more, what we would say, the more affluent counties or school districts. They oftentimes are the ones that won't override their mill levies or, or allow the uh, local governments to keep more of the revenue or raise taxes. So it it, it isn't just um, isolated to some areas. You've seen this across the state. Local governments vote to allow government to keep revenue above those taper limits and increase taxes when appropriate. The key word that I heard you say, when appropriate. So where have you seen debrucing, quote unquote, occur most often? Under for what circumstances is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I I would my uh, my guess and assumption would be that it's at the school uh, school district level. Um, School districts, because of the way that the funding works between a combination of local government and state, I think more often if we went and looked across the state. And I haven't done this research and looked at all the areas uh, in which a debru- or all the places debrucing has been on the ballot. My guess is it's most prominent with school districts and that school districts have passed them because, again, it re- it's up to the local, whether it's the school board or the city or the county to go and make the case to their local voters why they need that additional revenue. Michael, I'm going to kind of put you to the test here for a second. From my perspective, Tabor and the value of Tabor is being challenged in three ways. There's direct legislative changes, courts interpreting of Tabor, something more recent has occurred, and legislation which gets around the intent of Tabor. Uh, Let's start with point one. Can you explain what we are seeing to directly change the language related to Tabor? Direct legislative changes. Help Help us out. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that Tabor uh, has certain ballot language that has to go uh, in front of voters if they want to raise taxes. And it says, shall taxes be increased? And it gives the amount. Well, right now there's uh, legislation that's being proposed uh, by by legislators who don't agree with uh, the direction that, that Tabor has, has put the state and, and basically are saying, you know, what, we want to change uh, or add to that ballot language. And so what they're trying to do is really uh, put the services in, in front of voters to say, if you vote in favor of a tax uh, increase or in favor of a, a tax cut, this is the uh, the response that will happen within the government. And so uh, they're putting, you know, they want to put fire districts in, how much money will be available for the top three uh, expenditures in in uh, the state budget. And the problem that I have with it, one, is that voters asked to be to have that ballot language in Tabor. They, they voted for that. They want to see it. Uh, when legislators are going in, they are ready if they want to refer something to voters. Uh, they can already make their own ballot language. Now they want to go into the citizens initiative side, right? You or I go and get signatures and put something on and say, now we want to start talking about how the title board uh, puts ballot language out to voters. And I, I think there's a, an issue with that being, you know, not impartial uh, the way the title board is right now. Uh, but also, it's just not necessarily true. Just because you have a tax cut doesn't mean that it's going to impact the three top things in the budget. It could impact anything else uh, in the budget. Legislators can decide. Um, and also, I would like to see balance of if you're going to have a tax increase, that why don't we talk about the three things that you or I have to do with less of uh, if if they do increase those taxes, food, you know, uh, housing, gas, whatever that might be the impact. And so they're really trying to meddle uh, with the language in order to try to, to bias it, uh, you know, in favor of tax increases and against tax cuts. The word that comes to mind as you describe that is consequences. They're trying to have individuals foresee consequences or maybe it's already programmed that, hey, if you cut taxes, this is the consequences. And and your point is? My point is that it, there's consequences on both sides of that equation, right? To, to an individual, to a family, uh, that there are consequences. And I think people understand that if you cut the tax rate, 
Um, there will be, you know, government will have to respond to that. Uh, and if you increase it, you know, individuals will have to respond to that. And so I think the, the biggest thing is they don't see a path to winning at the ballot. And so they want to change the language uh, really to eventually pass a progressive tax increase. That is the ultimate goal. And so it'll be interesting to see what the governor does. Governor Polis uh, you know, has been vocal vocal against a progressive tax increase. Um, so will he veto this or not? It's it's to be seen. But um, even the sponsor of the legislation basically said, we're losing at the ballot box. Uh, we need to change directions here and, and stop the bleeding, he said. And so we need uh, to put this in the ballot language. And so that's what they're working on right now. And what are the chances of a passage? I think it's very high that it passes the legislature. The question will be, does Governor Polis sign it or not? Given the fact that, you know, he supported the income tax cut uh, last year, he doesn't want a progressive uh, income uh, tax increase. And this would, you know, up the chances of that happening. And so I'm fascinated to see if he signs it or not. Sounds a little bit perplexing to me. It sounds like there's trying to um, jerry-rig outcome. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Let's discuss point two. Hope it's a little bit simpler. Court rulings have concluded that Tabor does not apply to newer laws, affecting allowing tax increases and setting up new precedents. It's an interesting interpretation, but apparently they got court to rule in favor. Let me give you one example. In a recent Colorado Supreme Court ruling on a piece of legislation from the current legislative session, HB 21-1164, concluded that the law, which would force increases and school district tax rates or mill levies did not violate Tabor. Now, if I understand what you mentioned, Dustin, just a few minutes ago, you know, there's a lot of, at local level, tax increases one way or another. But now if they pass a law at the legislative level, it wouldn't impact Tabor. Colorado Supreme Court Chief Justice Brian Boatwright, who was in the minority decision on this, was recently quoted by Colorado Sun saying, HB 1164 is the very definition of a tax increase under our Constitution. Now House Bill 1164 is passed by 23 to 12 in the Senate. It passed 40 to 20 in the House. Michael, can you briefly explain what this bill is and why this recent ruling is so significant? Yes, this one's not simpler than than the last one. But basically, and I know you have covered this in, in a past uh, podcast, which I would encourage people to go and listen to. But basically, um, there was a what they would call a mistake that happened 15 years ago, where this debrucing that Dustin was talking about uh, had occurred. And yet some mills were continued uh, to ratchet down given that Tabor formula that we talked about. And so uh, the courts stopped that uh, the legislature stopped it, the courts upheld that back in 2007. Well, now they want to go back and say, you know what, that was a mistake. Why don't we fix those rates to what they should have been? 15 years later. The problem with that is uh, Tabor does say if you're going to increase these mills that you need to go to a vote of the people, uh, whether it's a mistake or not, or, you know, the history of it doesn't really matter. But two, a lot of these districts depended on the fact that they didn't think that these property taxes would increase. And so they decided to increase taxes on their own property taxes. They said, we want to fund our schools more. We're going to pass this, not thinking that the government would come in 15 years later and on top of that, raise them even more. And so this is a $90 million tax increase the first year. It goes up to $288 million a year. Uh, And really what we were just saying is put this to a vote of the people, uh, given the fact that it's been 15 years. uh, And that's what Tabor Tabor says you should do. I want to understand this. I'm I'm a property owner. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if I was in a particular area that debruced and 
I had a chance to, and they and we've increased my even though my property tax by whatever uh, mill levy I had didn't get increased, but I decided to increase my taxes because I wanted to pay more into the school district. Mm-hmm. Now the legislature and under 1164 HB 21-1164 can in effect say, hey, guess what? Uh, your property taxes are now going to go up, whereas before they wouldn't have been able to go up as much as maybe this legislation would suggest because of Tabor. But we are going to increase it. Even though you put a higher tax on yourself for school district, we're still going to increase it from a state perspective. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's a fair statement. And that's really what's happening. And and as Dustin mentioned earlier, a lot of these local education-based tax increases have passed because people will listen to their, you know, their school board, people that are making the case and say, you know what, uh, you know, this is something that might be sunset or it's specific. Over 65% of local mill or mill levy increases and bond increases pass. This isn't uh, a, a problem with, with you know, the, the process that Tabor puts people through. The, the response is at the state level, people, you know, are less likely to increase taxes, not at the local level. And so this is the state coming in and saying, uh, you know, that we're going to go back, fix this problem. Uh, and it means higher property taxes for all of us without a vote. All of us. So we're talking about the entire state. It's uh, most districts uh, have at least a few mills that have to go up. Some have much more. So this is a longer process for some that might be at you know seven mills and they have to go up to twenty seven. Uh, you know they could have uh, several years of increases. But a lot of the districts, a majority of the districts in the state, will see an increase. Downtown state state legislature has found a way around Tabor, so they're going to increase everybody's, well, most everybody's uh, mill levy on property. Yes, and they're saying this is a, a specific mistake that the court has now upheld. Well, I to could say... care less about the mistake. I'm just trying to understand yes. <clears throat> what they think they have the right to do, even though I may have already decided to spend more money, mm-hmm. in my case, Douglas County schools, which are excellent, mm-hmm. and decided to do some things to make them excellent. Okay, got it. All right. Well, would we call that a shenanigan, legislative <laughs> shenanigan? A couple of weeks ago, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit weighed whether local governments in Colorado are permitted to sue the state and seek repeal of the 1992 Taxpayer Bill of Rights Amendment. Dustin, if this court rules in favor of the ability for local governments to exempt themselves from Tabor, boy, what do you see the long-term impacts? Yeah, there's a couple. I, I think the, the first and, and most immediate is that it's, if is you get rid of Tabor at the local level, your voters, or we would immediately lose those taxpayer protections, that ability to vote on tax increases, and the ability to keep government in check and not the, allow them to keep more revenue. Than Don't you have a huge bifurcation in the state? That's the second. And so that's the other part of it, is that, I mean, you have all sorts of local taxing authorities, right. whether it's cities, counties, school districts, special districts. And if all of a sudden you allow them to to raise taxes at the whim of maybe a, a majority of, of a county commission or a majority of a city council, you're going to create some really unique situations where there will be taxes increased in some areas and lowered in others. And there, there's going to be pockets of, of cities who they think they're doing the right thing by raising taxes, but ultimately they're going to make their cities less competitive and drive families and businesses away from the city. So it's it, it would create a huge mess by allowing local governments to opt out of Tabor. Uh, again, if the if if local voters want to raise taxes or uh, allow the the local taxing entity to to keep more revenue, that's that's one thing. But if you just allow 
a majority of an elected body at any given time to start raising taxes and keeping that additional revenue, you're going to create some real challenges uh, across the state. Well, I, I want to go back just to the principle here, if I could, for a second. Dustin and Michael, that either one of you could step in if you would, but I'm going to start with you, Dustin. <clears throat> it seems to me that Tabor is all about fiscal management and uh, some principles by which we think fiscal management ought to be pursued. So everybody says, okay, so this is how we, in effect, are going to finance government. And so everybody has the same ground rules. And what you're saying, if I heard you correctly, is that, hey, whoever can afford a Cadillac can afford a Cadillac and, you know, good luck, enjoy it. But if you can only afford a Chevy, well, that's that's okay. You know, live with that. But if we want to spend a lot more to really change our community around or the council members want to change uh, things and they were elected accordingly, they can create a, a Rolls Royce and uh, whatever that might result in with regards to public services or what that might result in with regards to housing prices, so be it. Am I extrapolating that too? Uh, no, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, the, the, Benefit of Tabor is it really does allow citizens the ability to weigh in on what they want in terms of higher taxes or allowing the government to spend more or keep more revenue. And it takes it away. This is why a lot of elected leaders don't like it, is that they feel like they lose that power. But they have the ability to go and make the case to their voters. And you talked earlier about consequences, right? There's there's consequences and benefits on both sides. And Tabor says, hey, look, let's have that debate about the pros and cons, what this does for whether it's a local government, the state government, a school district, and what are the pros and cons to the families and businesses that are going to bear the responsibility of that new taxes. And ultimately, voters get to decide, is it worth it? And in some instances at the local level, we've seen them say, yes, it's worth it. We want more investments and we want a new you know, in Douglas County, they built a, a new justice center, or we need a new, um, in Arapahoe County, we need a, a, a new jail or prison, whatever it is, they have to make the case to voters, or we need new roads or better schools. Voters get that opportunity to choose. And if you take that away from voters and give it just to elected politicians, one, these elected politicians come and go. And two, they tend to only view it through the lens of how does this impact government and not how does it impact the families and businesses so that the ultimately differentiation pay differentiation is, is the broad base of the populace gets to debruce. Right. Whereas with the legislative changes or the, the changes being suggested here is that it could be something that the elected officials could decide to increase taxes or have more taxes associated with various cities within various um, services within the city. Do I hear you correctly? Yeah. Yep. My goodness. Okay. Let's move on to the final point. And the legislature attempts to raise revenue by going around the requirements of Tabor. We're certainly getting some examples of how that's working. Through uh, CSI's research, we understand that 70% of the state revenue, which this research blew me away. I didn't have any idea. Including the growth of fees is exempt from Tabor. <laughs> So I guess we've been trying to get around Tabor for some time, or people have been. Michael, you were the brains and chairman of Proposition 117, uh, voter approval of fees campaign, the voter approval of fees campaign. Can you talk a little bit about Prop 117 and why it was instrumental in how it passed last year? That's the exact point that, you know, when Tabor was passed back in 1992, fees made up, uh, or uh, money that was outside <laughs> of Tabor, including fees, made up about one-third of the budget. Now it's over two-thirds of the budget. And so you've seen a massive shift 
towards fees, uh, which are run by people who are not held accountable. They're not legislators. Uh, these people who run these enterprises, which is what the fees go under. And so basically what we decided was if it's a big fee, $100 million over five years or more, that we wanted to to make sure that voters could weigh in on that uh, the same way that they do with Tabor. And so that was what uh, this Proposition 117 did. It said if you're going to have a new enterprise, new fees that you're going to put into that enterprise that go over $100 million, that that we would vote on it. And well, time out for a second. So $100 million relative to the state budget is what? Not a lot. Um, our state budget is $34 billion. Uh, okay. And so, you know, you look at, uh, you know, you're talking basically if you broke it down by Two five half, years. 3%. Not much of it. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, saying in total, I'm sorry. In so total. it's not much. You're right. Very yeah. small. Not much of it. But it's more significant than if they're going to, you know, raise something that's 100 or $200. We want to vote on everything. Yeah, gotcha. um, but, you know, then we've seen the legislature uh, through the years pass different enterprises, including uh, the hospital provider fee, which happened a few years ago where they took it outside of the budget uh, and said this no longer, uh, you know, is is applied to Tabor. And so what we wanted to do with one seventeen, how much was that fee by the chance? So it was eight hundred million dollars uh, that was taken outside of of the Tabor cap, um, and they said it's a one time thing. You know, fix the glitch. They said we're never going to do this again. Uh, but I think some of us are smart enough to realize that this creates a path for them. I didn't have as much of a problem of having it in or outside of the of the Tabor cap, uh, but more what's going to come next. And so are they going to create some kind of education fee or healthcare fee? where they just take that totally outside of Tabor, and now we have no cap on it at all. And so what we wanted to do was prevent that from happening, uh, and then also try to prevent, uh, without voter approval, the fact that they would come up with new fees, uh, new programs that they would just uh, label as fees. Uh, okay, I have a kind of a ticky-tacky question, so bear with me if you would. When the states look at the total taxation they have and compare states around the country, I looked that up before this podcast, and we're right in the middle of all the states. But I noticed that it did not include anything associated with fees. It basically looked at property taxes, income taxes, and sales taxes, but not fees. And when you're talking about fees being two-thirds of our budget, I have a hunch. For, I, I don't know where we would rank relative to other states, but Assuming other states don't have fees like we do, I can assure you we'd be much higher in the total taxation. Do either one of you have any sense of uh, how we'd rank when you take the total fees we pay along with taxes? I, I haven't looked at that. I don't know what Michael has, but I can tell you, I mean, Colorado is unique with Tabor. And, and because we have Tabor, which requires that vote of the people uh, in order to increase taxes, You've seen things that are commonly referred to as taxes in other states called fees here. So we have the hospital provider fee, which Michael just mentioned. In other states, it's called the bed tax. It was intentionally called the hospital provider fee in order to to allow it to be raised and then ultimately pushed outside of, of the general fund because of Tabor. So without knowing for certain, I would almost guess that it's going to go, if we're in the middle, we're probably much higher when you apply that, uh, the the fees to that equation, because we're unique in the other states have fees. But I don't know that other legislatures across the country work so intentionally to call revenue fees in order to avoid Tabor because they don't have Tabor. Interesting. Maybe that's a project the CSI could get involved in to look at what is the real cost of like a great of research question to answer. And, yeah. Well, 
I think the appropriate people are probably listening to this podcast. <clears throat> we already talked about HP 1164 and the mandatory mill levy increase. But, Dustin, what are some other recently proposed pieces of legislation that attempt to or have gotten around the intent of Tabor and Prop 117? Yeah, so just this legislative session, we've, we've seen it <clears throat> talked about in a couple of instances and actually, um, and I believe it's Senate Bill 260, which is the transportation funding bill that's going through where they're if if somebody wants to read a good comedy script for Saturday Night Live, I think that was probably be a good one as to how they would fund the transportation bill. But I interrupt. Sorry. No, no, Go that's ahead. okay. But it, that, yeah, you're right. And and the way that they're they're again they're trying to get around Tabor by not increasing gas tax because one that it would be pretty tough to get the voters to increase gas taxes given the price of gasoline right now and and what that's doing to to so many Coloradans. But two. With 117, Michael said that it, it requires that same taxpayer protection of a vote of the people for any new fee that uh, generates over $100 million over five years. So what they've done instead is chop it up into a whole bunch of fees that don't, in fact, reach that threshold. So it's another, you called it shenanigans earlier. This is another example of legislative shenanigans where they're trying to get around not just Tabor, but now the new taxpayer protection that was just passed by voters last year. Now, we've seen them use fees, and this is the reason why Michael pushed for 117. I mean, I worked in the legislature back in 2010, 2011, and this was when the hospital provider fee was implemented. They have, the legislature has worked very hard at enterprising or calling things fees for a number of years in order to get around the taxpayer protections that were put in place in 1992. Michael strengthened them in, in 2020. And it didn't take them but a, a full year before they've tried to dance around them. And and we've seen 117 stop a potential fee this year. There was um, some conversations earlier this year about creating a carbon fee. So a carbon tax is what they call it everywhere else, but a carbon fee. And of course, they they couldn't figure out how to do it and keep it under that threshold. So thankfully, 117 was in place. But we've seen them figure out already loopholes. To, to dance around it and potentially bypass it. Although I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some legal challenges to the transportation funding bill that we're seeing this year. Well, you mentioned the transportation funding bill. We all, I think, uh, understand that improvement in transportation is probably a priority in the state, particularly roads and and bridges, et cetera. Michael, I'm going to put you on the spot. How do you think it ought to be funded? Yeah, well, I think there's a, a couple ways. One is that the fact that after the hospital provider fee passed, that opened up $800 million that we talked about in the budget. Uh, at the time, we were talking it was 250 or $300 million that was needed out of the general fund to bond for long-term projects to get several billion dollars. Stop, stop. I want to hold on. So the, the hospital provider fee was a one-time? No, it's continual. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how could the money for the roads come from that? Or are you just saying it'd be allocated from that? So, so allocated uh, in bond. I think you have to bond, given the amount of money that we right. uh, need to get, that you have to bond in order to do it. That created a revenue stream that they said they needed three hundred million dollars. Uh, they could have taken three hundred million dollars out of that and done it. Uh, they didn't do it at the time. Uh, now we have, you know, a fact where our budget, uh, you know, during COVID went down. Now it is back up. I, I would love to see them take money out of the general fund, at least for the first few billion dollars of projects we know that need to get done. Uh, but we used to do this. We used to take money out of the general fund and they've chipped away at that over the years. Um, and and I, I don't think, you know, having a larger conversation, if new revenue is needed, go to the people and ask them, right? This is the whole process uh, and say, you know what, we're going to kick some general fund money in. We think we need a little bit more have that conversation with voters. But I agree, we need to fix roads. 
Uh, we need, you know, a good education system. We need good public safety. We have to uh, use public money to invest in these things. The question is, is do you just, you know, uh, roll over voters and say, we're not even going to have that conversation with you. Uh, we're going to spend it on whatever we want. And then we're going to increase fees on you uh, at a time when gas prices are high, when we are coming out of hopefully coming out of a recession. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, there is general general fund money there and additional money should go to voters to have that conversation. Okay. But you mentioned the hospital provider fee. So you're saying it's a continual source of funds that comes in. It's a brand new continual source of funds. It was, yeah. And your original point was is you could carve out three hundred million of that and <clears throat> excuse me, and that could in turn be the amortization and interest to fund a significant amount of um, bonds that would fix highways and bridges. Was that what I heard yeah, you suggest. Exactly right. And they decided to do a few projects for a couple of years, but they did not lock that money in over the long term. Uh, but that's exactly what they should have done. So you're really talking about uh, budgetary uh, discipline where you're allocating specific f funds of the budget for longer periods of time associated with fees. And uh, you're saying, hey, we could solve some major issues here in the state if we were to do that. Is that fair? Yeah. And Bill Owens did it when he was governor, right? He came in and said, uh, we're going to fix fix our roads. Uh, he he basically came up with a bonding program out of the general fund and did it. And so there's a, a, a you know, it's been, hap it, there's a successful track record of this happening. They could have done it again after hospital provider fee. Well, Earl, just, I want to jump in with two points. One of, the, one of the things that he said, and I think it's important to know, is that let's forget whether or not 260 is a good idea or a bad idea. They could have done this and still respected the will of the voters by sending it to the ballot. And if, if voters want to increase these fees, send it to them and let them have a voice. Instead of trying to dice it up in, in a way that they can get it through the legislature without the vote of the people, they should have gone to it. And maybe the voters of Colorado would say, hey, look, we don't mind these fees and we're willing to pass it. So that's the point one. And then to Michael's point about directing or tying up general fund revenue in order to do potentially long-term bonds to, to solve some of these major um, projects, a lot of times the legislature is unwilling to do that, even though they say over and over that transportation is a top priority for us, but they're unwilling to do that because then if they lock that revenue up, it takes away from what is truly their priorities. And I think that's something to keep in mind. As, as somebody who's running for city council in Aurora, I've looked at ways that we can fundamentally change the way that we fund roads in the city, and that is looking at taking the sales and use taxes that are related to automobile sales and dedicating that to road funding each and every year. Because currently it just goes into the general fund. And again, we say we're, we care about having better roads and improving our transportation system. But when it comes time to actually writing a budget and putting together a budget, it never reflects that priority. So you're assigning revenues to expenditures and everybody knows what it's for and there's, it's above board. That's right. And you don't have somebody get elected that maybe all of a sudden says, I'd rather have X, Y, or Z right. versus uh, roads to being taken care of. Right. Okay. I understand that. I'm going to give both of you a chance to pretend that you you see the future. What do you see the future, Tabor? How do you see the uh, the next five years, the next 10 years? I know you've got to think about who's going to be in office, but kind of give us your best shot. I think that as much as Tabor has been attacked over the last two decades, whatever it's been since it, it's, it's been in place, that the taxpayer protection of allowing citizens to vote will not go away because voters truly value the ability to say yes or no to tax increases. So I think that part of Tabor is safe. The part of Tabor that allows 
the state or to, that creates that revenue cap, the amount of money that the, the city uh, or cities, local governments, the state gets to keep. I expect that the there will be a continued attempt to erode it. And the question is, do they do it through the shenanigans that we've seen this last uh, cycle where they go to the courts and, and, and try to, to kind of pick it apart? Because I don't believe, I think that's the only path to doing it. Because if they go to voters and ask voters honestly, can we do, can we tear apart gut Tabor in this way? I think voters will reject it time and again. So if I were looking forward in, in um, the next five years, I do think that the fate of Tabor minus the, the part of whether or not we can vote on new taxes will be intact. But the other portions of it, that ability to retain revenue or not, um, the ability for the legislature to continue to sidestep it is going to be dependent upon the men and women who serve in our legislature in the next five years. I, Michael, before you go, I want to go back. I want to make sure we're clear. What do you mean retain revenue? Help me out. So that that's the, the portion of Tabor, that second part, is the ability to Tabor sets a limit on how much revenue the state can keep each year. And that's mm-hmm. where, when we talk about debrucing, essentially what debrucing is, is allowing the state or the local government to retain revenue, to keep revenue above that threshold. So there are years when the economy is strong and the state brings in more money than the Tabor cap. So we exceed okay. that cap. And then the gap- That's at the state level. At the state and at the local level. Well, and so you said you mentioned the local level, the, the, the uh, retained revenue at the local level. It's, it works both ways. So in for example, in Aurora right now, we have a property tax. I believe it's seven mils. And we're going to refund- Aurora taxpayers, $3 million in property tax because we are above our Tabor cap for um, revenue. When I say retain revenue, it's the ability to keep revenue, state, local, whatever level, uh, above that Tabor cap. When when we're in good years, right now, I believe the state is 300-ish million under the Tabor cap, so we're not in that. But although right before the pandemic hit, we were way above it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you had originally mentioned at the local level, the retention of revenues like at Aurora would be revoked. You, you're you're saying that that's that's possibly in the cards. Possibly in the cards, and and a lot of local governments have already debruced, right? Already allowed for that. But I I can see that happening across the board, um, and and potentially even statewide with the way that the legislature is trying to to pick at it. They want to be able to keep that revenue. They don't want there to be a revenue limit ever. They want it when the when the economy is strong. Whatever money government gets, government keeps. So if Aurora is forced to keep that three hundred million or whatever it is, three million, three yeah. million. I'm sorry, three million. Then that would mean the state would have to give them less money for maybe if they have the budget or how does that work? No, it's it. If, so if if Aurora were to let's say we had a a vote of the people this year to debruce our property taxes mm-hmm. and that would allow us to keep that three million dollars, that would just go into the Aurora general fund. Okay, all right, very good. Michael, how do you how do you see things progressing? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Dustin said there. I think that there is a you know a strong likelihood that tax rates uh, are still uh, you know countered under under Tabor that Tabor uh, still applies voting uh, on tax rate increases. I think the real question is going to be: Do they use fees to get around? Are these other shenanigans going to continue? And I do think that has a lot to do with the electoral side. For a long time here in Colorado, even if the courts would uphold it. Uh, certain legislators wouldn't go there and do that because they thought they might lose the election because mm-hmm. voters would get upset. Uh, I think we're at a point where you have legislators who think that they can't lose. 
um, and they can do this stuff that that voters don't agree with or not even asking them. And so I do think that, you know, I'm a long term policy person, but I do think that electoral politics will play into this, uh, especially this next year. Uh, will there be a response to the transportation bill and raising property taxes uh, without a vote of the people? Uh, I think that is something that that, that is going to be front and center in that campaign. And so there's going to be a response one way or the other. If the response is to put the same legislators back there who are doing this, they're going to be emboldened to do even more of it. But I do think that that broad fact that we vote on tax rate increases, that we have a flat tax, I think will remain intact. I'm just amazed by the conversation. Uh, and just all this going on. And I, frankly, how in the world does the public stay on top of it? I mean, I they may listen to the podcasts, and if they've picked up um, 90% of what we're talking about, God love them, because I think that's, you know, there's so much going on and so many different, uh, you know, subtleties and how the, the legislators are mighty smart as to what they're trying to accomplish. And obviously, they've got their goals and, and that they, and objectives, and and they're saying, hey, I got elected to do this. But yet when you take it out to the public, like you said, the public doesn't vote that way oftentimes. So it's kind of an interesting little uh, divergence, I guess, between what the legislatures are doing and what the public generally likes to see. Yep. Well, thank both of you. Thank you for the incredible insights on this topic. I hope that the policymakers and business leaders will take time to really consider everything you talked about today. I mean, this is something that we as citizens really need to understand if we want to have a good sense of the future of our state and control of the future of our state. For folks who are looking to learn more about Tabor, please visit www.commonsenseinstitute.co.org and search Tabor to find out all of our previous research on policy related to the topic. Michael, Dustin, uh, thank you so much. Any last final words? Just thanks for having us as a uh, proud CSI, although it was CSPR when I was here, alum. <laughs> I appreciate all the work you guys are doing, the the, the research, the content. It, it really is objectively helpful. And, and I think that your point about we need listeners to, to understand this stuff, I think if they go to commonsenseinstituteco.org, um, it would be a, a good first step. And I just want to echo that. I think CSI does great work helping inform uh, the public, you know, thoughtful discourse about stuff. And I would also say the media does cover these topics pretty well in, yeah. in Colorado, especially the Colorado Sun, you know, the Colorado Public Radio. They do in-depth stories about this. And so check those out and, and kind of hear both sides of it. Thank you so much for being with us today. For those of you listening, thank you. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.